This is PodBridge. Connecting the U.S., the Middle East, and the world. Welcome. This is Yusuf Al-Oteba. I'm the UAE Ambassador to the United States, and I'm your host for this week's episode of PodBridge. Each week, our goal is to explore issues of common interest to the United States, the Middle East, and the world. About six months ago, the global economy was booming. Today, the pandemic has brought the world economy to its knees. The real economy is suffering, but the markets are doing well. How is that possible? Has globalization failed? Which industries will disappear and why? We have hundreds of questions. The good news is we have arguably one of the most qualified people in the world to help us answer these questions. My dear friend, Mohammed Al-Aryan, is chief economist at Allianz, a distinguished economist, an accomplished author, but more importantly, he's a close personal friend of mine. And I'm really honored to host him today. Hamad, thank you for joining us. Mr. Ambassador, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Hamad, let's start with the easy questions. So what's your forecast for the global economy? What's going to happen in the next six to 12 months? What should we expect? So that is not an easy question. Um, that's a really hard question. Because for the first time in my career, you cannot take a view on the economy without taking a health view. And the health view itself relates not just to what happens to the virus, what happens to vaccines, but also to how people will behave. Will fear dominate? Will carelessness dominate? So it's hard. I think on the whole, the closest to my baseline has been the IMF. And really the IMF projections say three things. First, it will be the worst year for the global economy as a whole for a very, very long time, with some countries showing record contraction. Second, there's going to be a lot of differences with Asia doing relatively well, Latin America doing badly, and then all the other countries somewhere in the middle. And thirdly, within the year, we are going to witness these very dramatic decline, and then it looks like a V, but it's not really a V. So it's going to be uncertain, bumpy, and unprecedented. So let's assume someone appoints you in charge of the recovery. You are the czar to help us out of this mess. What would be some of the policies you would advocate and recommend to help us get there of course, provided that we still have to deal with the healthcare piece of it and the behavioral piece of this. So you said, first and foremost, I would work very closely across agencies because this is much more than the economy. And I would focus on three distinct buckets, all of which come together. One is what I call pure relief, helping people who, for no fault of their own, can no longer generate income. In fact, some of them can't even afford food on the table. Pure relief. The second bucket would be living with the reality of COVID-19. It will take time, not just to come up with a vaccine, but to distribute it. We are living with COVID for a while. We want to make that period as healthy and as economic productively as possible. So the second set of measures would be to make sure that this period is healthy and economically productive. And then the third bucket is more longer term, but we need to start working on this now. We're going to emerge with scars to the economy. We're going to emerge with a significant hit to productivity, to globalization, 
and to how people feel, what I call household economic insecurity. And there's things that can be done today to minimize that risk down the road. Remember, we cannot repeat the mistake of the global financial crisis, which was to win the war against the depression, but fail to secure a piece of long-lasting, durable, and inclusive growth. I'm glad you brought up the 2008-2009 crisis. One of our previous episodes, we interviewed Khaldun Mubarak from Mubadala and David McCormick from Bridgewater. And that was one of the questions is, because we all lived through the previous crisis, are there any lessons learned? Are there any similarities? What should we be doing today that we may have learned from what we went through 12 years ago? So I think the biggest lesson is don't repeat the mistake, um, which is of winning the war but losing the peace. Because when you lose the peace, you're more vulnerable to the next shock, and we will have shocks. But the other mistake people have made is maldiagnosing the shock. So let's, let's not guards. 2008 was a major shock, but it was like a heart attack. It hit you hard. Yeah. It paralyzed you. But it was concentrated. It was concentrated in the financial system, concentrated in the heart, if you like. If you address the heart quickly, then the rest of the body recovers. And that's what we saw. This one is very different, Yusuf. This is like having infections all over your body. You cannot just address intervention in one part. You've got to have a multifaceted intervention system. And it takes longer to heal. So it's important to understand that while it seems this, the same way, this, this notion of it's sudden, what economists call a sudden stop, when everything stops, it's very different in terms of what's ailing the economy and how long it will take us to come back. Yeah, it's interesting you use that analogy because you're right. In 2008, 2009, it was exclusive in the financial world and it didn't really spill over into other sectors. And the previous health crisis we've had, Ebola or SARS, were also limited geographically. Ebola was in Africa, SARS was in Asia. So if you weren't in Africa or Asia, you really didn't experience this. Now we have a situation where everyone is feeling everything the crossover between the healthcare crisis and the economic crisis is virtually everywhere on the planet with varying degrees. And we keep seeing that countries who have taken tough measures, tough lockdowns, New Zealand is the country that comes to mind that got out of it early, you know, everything is recovering quickly. And countries that have taken a long time to address it are recovering much slower and the impact is much greater. But, but there's a strange anomaly that I'm seeing here in the U.S. that we just briefly, briefly touched on. You have around 50 million people unemployed. A lot of SMEs are not going to make it back from this. Can you explain how that can be happening on one side of the ledger, but the markets are booming and setting records on the other side of the ledger? Yes, and it's the question I get asked most often, Yusuf. Hmm. And let me first tell you what it isn't. It isn't that markets are irrational. No, it's not that. And it's not that markets are looking at something else. It's not that either. It is that market has stumbled into a win-win mentality. Mm. And it is the duality of you win here and you win there that means that every dip in the marketplace is bought. And the first win is we are the market. We are long-term. We look through the valley. You'll hear that over and over again. 
there is economic prosperity on the other side because there is a vaccine. So the marketplace, a certain part of it, is happy betting not on the journey, which is what we feel in the real economy, but on a destination that capitalism will hold together and will come back strongly when there is a solution to the health problem. But what has made this particularly potent is the other win, the feeling that you even get paid if you get it wrong. And that's because the Federal Reserve in particular, but also the European Central Bank, also the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, has repeatedly since the global financial crisis come in and backed the markets. Not because they like investors, but because they want to minimize the risk of market disruptions contaminating the economy. So if you're an investor, you're very conditioned right now, I think excessively, very conditioned to feel that you'll win either way if you're right about the economy and if you're wrong. Add to that two letters, a bunch of letters that have become almost conventional wisdom. One is FOMO, fear of missing out. Every single sell-off has been bought. So people buy quickly. And the other one is Tina. If I don't invest in the stock market, where do you want me to invest? I don't get paid anything on my savings. So all that has gotten together to completely, and in my view, you said excessively, disconnect the markets from the economy. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know if we remember, you know, maybe seven or eight months ago before Corona, the, the climax of the trade war at the time was the, between the United States and China. And there were tariffs and there were accusations and it was very turbulent. When news of a meeting, just a meeting, would break, the markets would go through the roof. Just that they announced that they would meet. So it really reflects exactly what you're saying. Let's, let's slide over into the political world now. We're about three months away from a big election. Um, Vice President Biden, I think, will have a fundamentally different economic approach than President Trump. Can you help us understand the differences if Biden wins, what an economic policy under Democrats would look like versus what we see now with President Trump? So the biggest mistake I think people make is thinking that a Biden administration is going to be very different from a Trump administration when it comes to the theme of China and deglobalization. I don't think either of them is going to be that different on what the outcome is vis-a-vis a slow decoupling from China and a slow process of deglobalization. There's very strong support in the U.S., for a stronger stance vis-a-vis China. That is not going to be different. But what is going to be different is the balance between people and companies. I think that under a Biden administration, we can expect greater emphasis on redistribution, on protecting people, on regulation versus deregulation, on doing more for Main Street and doing less for Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that the market so far has shrugged that off. As it has shrugged off, the Chinese tensions, which are, as you know, better than anybody else, at all-time highs. Why? Because they continue to believe that liquidity is what matters and the Federal Reserve will continue to provide liquidity. Do you think we'll see tax increases under a Biden administration? I do. 
think is going to be part of the shift. We're going to, I think we're going to see higher corporate taxation, and I think we will see a closure of loopholes like the treatment of carried interest, as well as probably the high rates going, going higher. We, we both mentioned and touched on China. And I don't think you can have a, co- a conversation about the global economy or Corona without talking about China. It's safe to say the honeymoon's over. There was a period where some people call it coupling, some people call it globalization, but that period, that whatever it is you want to call it, it's starting to unravel. Give us, in your sense, what is the best case scenario of an environment where the U.S. works with China or the worst case scenario? And how should we in the middle, <laughs> who are stuck between these two giants, address it, not just politically, but economically? These are two biggest markets and economies in the world. Countries like ourselves and others have to be able to get along with both. So what does that scenario look like for you if you were advising the UAE? So the final part of your question is the one that's not being asked again. Look, we had at one point a marriage and a honeymoon. Then we had somewhat of a separation with a view to getting back together. This is a divorce. Let's be clear. This is a divorce. And in the United States, it's being driven by the government. It's being driven by companies who are changing their emphasis from efficiency to resilience and bringing back their supply lines. We shoring, and China is going to suffer because of that. And it's also going to be driven by the household sector. We're going to have high unemployment for a while. So this, for me, is not a separation. This is a divorce. Now, as we know, divorces can be friendly or divorces can be not friendly and very costly. So the friendly divorce is what I call decoupling but maintaining partnerships where they matter on global issues, on climate change, on pandemics. So continuing to work together in a multilateral fashion Mm -hmm. while decoupling gradually, gradually at a bilateral level. A really messy divorce is a blame game, is a tick for tat that gets worse, and it is not working multilaterally on common problems that require common solutions. The problem is for the countries in the middle. And lots of them, think of Singapore, think of Australia. They run what's called a dual option model, which means you maintain an option on China for economic linkages, but you also maintain an option for the U.S. for security. And what we are seeing is the U.S. is getting to be tougher. Look what happened in the U.K. with Huawei. So I would say tell the UAE, start having scenario analyses. And I think we all need scenario analyses in this world of uncertainty. Know what happens if the cost of that dual option becomes really high. How are you going to deal with this? Because I think that the most likely outcome is that that option is going to become very costly. So let's pretend. Let's say the United States comes to you, Muhammad, and says, Muhammad, we would like to hire you as our divorce attorney as we get divorced from China. We want to make it less costly, less harmful, but we're definitely getting divorced. How would you advocate that takes place? I would say, look, no matter how much we're going to have divorce, we have kids. Okay, we, we have a, resp- a joint responsibility for climate change. 
We have joint responsibility for fighting pandemics. We have joint responsibility for fighting terrorism. We have lots of joint responsibility. So while we could be divorced, we still have joint responsibilities. So let's agree that we will work on these joint responsibilities because they're either win-win or lose-lose. They know one win, one one loses. And let's use multilateral channels. Multilateral channels are very powerful for solving common problems. In the past, we thought we could do it bilaterally. Now, clearly, we have more issues bilaterally. So let's resort more to the multilateral system to solve things that we have shared responsibility for. You, you've kind of led me exactly into the next area that I want to cover. You've oh, you let me. <laughs> uh, you, you've covered a lot and you wrote a lot about central banks and multilateral institutions from the WTO, IMF, World Bank, and so on. You know, sometimes as countries grow, they depend less and less on multilaterals. Some smaller countries would make the opposite argument that because we're small, we need to defend more, depend more on the multilateral system. You've argued saying that central banks are the only game in town. So give us your sense of what is the role of central banks, IMFs, World Banks, WTOs going forward as these crises become more global and less regional? So central banks became the only game in town, not by choice, but by necessity. Everything else started losing concentration or became structurally impaired. And the result of that is central banks felt compelled to respond. And they can respond faster because they are politically autonomous. They don't need to go to parliaments to get approval to do things. They can do most things on their own. So that's why I, you know, I tell central banks, yes, they are the, the only game in town, but this was not a power grab. This was stepping into a vacuum that otherwise would have been very costly. Now, the trouble is they don't have the right tools. So when you rely on the wrong tools, like you rely on the wrong medicine if you're a patient when you need an operation but you just get painkillers, at some point, not only do the painkillers become less effective, but the side effects become problematic. And that's where we are today with central bank policies. So we need to go back at the national, regional, and global level to the tools that work. Multilateralism is key here. But let's also face it. I worked at the IMF for 15 years. I love that institution. It has a credibility problem. It's very hard to explain voice and representation. It's a reflection of what the world was in the past, not the world what the world is today. I can never explain to someone how these institutions that advocate merit-based approaches in countries have nationality-dominated criteria for their top leadership. That doesn't make sense. So these institutions have to reform, and I think it's an obligation of the membership for it to reform. Otherwise, if you're China, if you are the developing countries, you'll say, you know what, these are not my institutions, and you'll start doing what China is doing, which is creating new institutions. Yes, yeah. You and I were at an event last summer, back when there were still events going on, and there was a debate in one of the sessions on you know, the liberal world order and all the institutions that were created in the post-World War II era, era like NATO and the World Bank, the IMF, and so on. And, and, and one of the things I took away was those institutions were built yeah, around 70 years ago, the vast majority of them. And the world's changed a lot in the last 70 years. The institutions haven't. If you pull out your cell phone, your smartphone today, 
your smartphone will not allow you to go more than six months before forcing you to upgrade its software. It's been 70 years since any of these institutions upgraded its software. And so I think, like you said, because the tools aren't there, they're not qualified to solve some of these problems, which is why exactly a lot of the countries veer away from them and try to do things on their own. That's correct. And, and I think that that's a cost to everybody. I think there's been political hesitation among those who are going to give something up. And it's mainly Europe. The most overrepresented part of the world in these institutions today is Europe. And Europe isn't even represented as a Eurozone or European Union. They represented as individual countries who maintain voice and representation way above anything that is justifiable today. Yeah. And people have noticed. And we have to understand that the system is, is, is built in such a way to operate well through the core of the system. And if people lose trust in the core of the system, they start creating pipes around the core. They can't replace the core, but they can, can create lots of pipes and the system fragments. And when a global system fragments, it's much harder to manage, especially through crises. And we're seeing this today, unfortunately, with COVID-19. Yeah, I think our tendency and what you've said and what a lot of people have said is, you know, in crises like this, we need multilateral institutions to save us and to solve our problems. The problem is those multilateral institutions don't have the tools or the toolkit to solve these problems because they're outdated. And right. so we have a catch-22 situation where we don't know how to go and get these resolved because the institutions themselves are, are not qualified to solve them. So, so you see basically everyone going and doing their own thing in their own countries. And I understand that, you know, at some point you have to put the fire out in your house before you go out and put the fire out in your neighbor's house. But yeah. And I'll just tell you, you know, one issue that we're going to confront in a few months time, and it is really consequential, is the distribution of vaccines. Yes. And how sh who should decide who gets a vaccine at a global level. And that's going to be a very difficult issue. And we lack, unfortunately, the sort of global coordination and solidarity that, that is needed to solve this in a way that people can live with. I totally agree. Whatever company comes up with the breakthrough and manages to create the right formula for the vaccine, they'll create the formula. I don't think any company on the planet has the ability to produce 7 billion or 7 billion doses of any medication. And so, yeah, you're going to have a, a free-for-all with everyone trying to get their hands on as much as they can first at the expense of everyone else. And if you don't have a global institution to manage that process, you know, it's only going to increase the wedge between the haves and the have-nots, between the, the wealthy and the poor. And I, that's something I worry about, which actually brings me to my next point, which is there's a lot of now analysis about globalization. Globalization is either the greatest thing in the world and it has helped humankind or it's the reason for all our problems. And we haven't really figured out the right marriage or intersection between globalization, creating opportunities and inequality, which we see vastly in various parts of the world today where we never expected to see inequality. Where, how should we think about this? I think in two ways, and, and that also applies to what's happening within countries, not just among countries. One is to understand that you can't have completely free globalization, just like you can't have completely free capitalism, that you need to set parameters. 
And those parameters have to take into account the notion of inclusiveness. It is important that globalization work for more people. Otherwise, people opt out. And they can opt out in, 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 a, in a nonviolent fashion, but they can also opt out in a violent fashion. And that's in no one's interest. So the first element is make capitalism and make globalization more inclusive. We know how to do that. The second element, as important, is to correct for the failures of globalization, just like we correct for market failures. At the national level, we make decisions where we say the market is not working well. For example, equality of opportunity. Sometimes the market doesn't do well and you have to intervene. You give a scholarship as a way to intervene and overcome just market forces. So you, you have to do both things. You know, Yusuf, I, I don't think of this as an engineering problem, which is the hopeful side. I think there are solutions and we can get quite a way down the road and then learn as we do this as to what else we need to do. The bad news is that it's a political problem. It's a political implementation problem. And that has gotten a lot worse with this shift to nationalism, which I think is with us, unfortunately, for at least the next few years. Yeah, and by the way, that shift is taking place all over the world. It's not just in the West or the East or the North or the South. This is a, this is a um, almost like an elite versus a nationalist approach. And that also is, you know, breaking out in what looks to be like a very unfriendly, it's either win, someone has to win, therefore someone has to lose. That's there what I worry about. The oldest political trick in the book, and there's, there's a Hollywood movie about it, but we've also seen it in real life over and over again, is when you have problems at home, then create a conflict with the outside that everybody can unite on at home. And that's, that's the problem we have, is that countries are facing issues at home, so the easiest thing is to blame the foreigner. Um, and that's why this nationalism is so prevalent all over the world right now. Yeah. I hope we learn a lot from this crisis in order that we can take those lessons learned and apply them to our countries. And I mean, one of the things we are looking at in the UAE is, okay, we were, you know, accelerating to focus on technology and AI and space. This is just going to make us drive there faster. Our education system is going to look fundamentally different in the next couple of years because of this. You know, all the things that we were going towards, we just have to go towards faster. That's how we are kind of looking at how to deal with the post-COVID world. And um, I think that's, that's the right approach. I mean, a lot of people admire the leadership in UAE because they have, they have vision. You know, the poor leadership is not seeing where you want to go or alternatively seeing where you want to go and thinking you can identify every single step, which you can't. Great leadership is having the vision of where you want to be, identifying the first few steps, and then learning a lot and course correcting if needed. I think the key responses to this crisis are first, as you absolutely point out, is to have a vision to where you want to be. Don't be taken off that vision and use the opportunity that comes with disruptions. Yeah. And the second element is let's bottle up some of the stuff we're learning. We are seeing incredible silver linings. I have a whole page on my desk of silver lining. They include things like an acceleration, a leapfrogging of medical innovation that's going to help generation after generation. How scientists have come together across the world. We are seeing better public-private partnership. We're seeing industries respond in a more socially responsible manner. Yeah. And we've seen lots of things like that. So we're about six months into this 
global pandemic crisis, both on a healthcare, economic, social levels. What are I, you were talking about silver linings, but what are the lessons? What have we learned so far that we need to apply to get us out of this mess? So you know, I look at I look at what we went through as a family, and I suspect what what I'm going to say that others shared. Suddenly, we were all brought together in quarantine, sheltered at home, and we were completely disrupted. And that was particularly disruptive to to kids who go to school, who lost their friends, their networks, everything else. It was hard. And then we learned a few tricks. And I think these speak more generally, and I'm sorry to make it personal. The first thing we did is we decided every day we're going to talk about what we know and what we don't know about this really unsettling time. And we will set out different scenarios for the future. So people started getting comfortable knowing what they know and knowing what they don't know. And that made us all feel comfortable. Secondly, we decided to create space for how we're going to operate. Yes, we're going to operate virtually. We can do this. We, we can, and you know what? We are going to accelerate certain things. And thirdly, wellness becomes a really important issue. Um, and those are lessons that I think most people have learned at home that have massive lessons for communities as well. Be transparent if you're a company. Communicate lots and lots. Realize you're going to have adjustment fatigue. Realize that not everybody's going to adapt the same way. Try to provide ways for people to come together and overcome what is this incredibly loneliness that you may feel. And I think that together, working together, people can can make it through this. And it's just a matter of honestly common sense, hoping until we get the vaccine. I hope that's the lesson learned across the world, because if they take that approach, whether it's COVID or climate change or nonproliferation, nuclear, you name it, there is a series of transnational issues that do not get resolved unless everybody comes together. The alternative is everyone goes and does their own thing as a country or as a society and drives each other further apart. And I'm definitely a supporter of your approach because at the end of the day, we all live on the same planet together. You know, there's, there's, whether you're living in California or you're living in Abu Dhabi, it's the same planet, it's the same oxygen, it's the same climate, it's the same healthcare system that you're going to have to live with. And I hope, I hope people learn this. I hope I this too. is one of the lessons they learn from this. Yeah, and that's another silver lining is, is what we call, what economists call tail events, very low probability events that have a huge impact. I think for people now are very aware of what a tail event looks like, looks like and it is very disruptive. Um, and, you know, the natural reaction to a tail event, look at a community that gets hit by a flood. What's the first thing that happens? The demand for flood insurance goes up. Um, and I hope that people will realize these tail events actually are becoming almost baseline event. Climate change is an example. Pandemic is another example. And let's take them seriously, because if we don't, then the consequences can be very, very severe. I totally agree. Our last question, Mohammed, is really kind of your expertise in your wheelhouse. Uh, let's pretend all our listeners are savvy investors, and they're all watching this the same way we are. What would you be advising people to invest in or to not invest in? What are the things you think will have a positive effect in the next six months and what won't? 
So most of us who have been in markets for a long time and believe that fundamentals matter are very uncomfortable right now. Yeah. And we're very uncomfortable because valuations are so high. Um, so we tend to be more cautious than the average investor. Mm-hmm. We tend to focus on certain characteristics. First and foremost, if you're investing in companies, make sure that they have strong balance sheets, positive cash flow, that they have good management, and that they're on the right side of the migration from physical to virtual. And we have seen these companies um, do well, and I think they will continue to do well, but with more volatility. Second, respect central banks. If central banks are buying an asset, that is very consequential because they have massive balance sheets yeah. and they're what's called non-commercial. They're not doing this to buy money, to make money. They're doing it for another reason. So investment-grade bonds are where central banks are focusing these days. In Europe, it is on the peripheral countries um, where they are focusing. So those are safer. And then on the other side, when you do not have a positive theme, regret minimization is the right approach. Um, you better ask the question, what mistake can I live with? Because in such an uncertain world, the probability of a mistake goes up. It doesn't mean we want to make a mistake. It just means that we're more likely to make a mistake. Yeah. Thank you, Mohammed. Uh, I don't know how to thank you for such an insightful session. But to all our listeners, I hope now you understand and appreciate why Mohammed is such a listen-to voice whether you are a head of state or a central bank or a CEO. Hamad understands this and explains this better than anyone I know. But more importantly, he's also Egyptian and something that we share in common. So to those of you who don't know, I'm half Egyptian. My wife is Egyptian. And we in Egypt tend to be very proud of our country mates who go out and succeed on the global stage. Right now, there's only two people on the planet who sort of have the same level of respect and admiration by 100 million Egyptians. And both of them are named Muhammad. One is Muhammad Al-Aryan, and the other one is Muhammad Salah. You've both made a whole lot of Egyptians, including many people from my school who were very excited when they found out I was interviewing you today. Very, very proud. So Muhammad, thank you very much for being with us today. More importantly, thank you for being such a dear friend. You're way too kind. Um, I don't deserve even a tenth of what you just said, but what I'm very proud of is to be your friend, Yusuf. And thank you for a really interesting conversation. And I wish everybody well and peace stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Hamza. This has been PodBridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the PodBridge project, follow us on Twitter at UAEUSA United or visit our website at podbridge.com. 